This is the Blackout Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Blackout Podcast where I get to talk to amazing people that do amazing things and I'm happy to have Julie. Okay, I have to make sure I say your <laughs> last name right. Julie Hollenbach? Hollenbach. Hollenbach. Yeah, like the composer, you know. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit more about yourself. Well, um, I'm an artist, a writer, a curator, and an educator. And I live in Chibuktuk, Halifax. And you love the books. Oh, my God. I so, love the books. So, <laughs> I know. I remember uh, first meeting you and I'm like, oh, you know, she, you just have this interesting vibe about you. And then I don't know why I read. I can't remember where. But then I saw PhD in front of your name. I'm like, holy smokes. You know, because PhD is like a whole bunch of studying and studying and studying and studying. Why did you decide to go all the way to PhD? I mean... I cited an art history PhD, which was about studying Western. My specific PhD was about studying Western forms of culture and art. Um, and I think I was interested in doing that because I'm interested in the stories that are dominantly and popularly told and then the stories that are not being told. Mm. And I wanted to understand more about why that is. And like when I don't see certain kinds of art in those textbooks, I wanted to know, you know, who was making those decisions and what were those decisions being based on? Like, and I'm talking about like the artwork of people of color, indigenous people, women, queers, mm. you know, like I was like looking, cause I'm a queer person. Mm. I'm like a cis woman, but I was, I was originally looking for like, where is queer culture? Where are these subcultures? And that's what started it. It started with my own investigation. And then I was like, oh, well, I see what's dominant. You know, it is the culture of white men um, historically. And then we inherited that. So that's what sort of motivated my own investigation mm. and my own exploration. It was kind of a way to make space for myself in a world uh, of like art that didn't feel very habitable or kind or, f or open to me. Mm. And then, you know, part of that is also about like, how do I, I really love collaborating and I like making friends a lot. And then how do I share and make space for other people mm. and build stuff with other folks? Mm. Why do you like collaborate? Um, I mean, I think I like collaborating for a lot of reasons. I don't like, I'm an extrovert. I don't like working by myself. The PhD was really hard for me mm. because I had to do so much of my research on my own in archives in libraries, I mean, that's true to an extent. I spend a lot of time by myself, but it's also not true in that nothing is ever like solo labor, right? There were so many librarians and archivists who helped me out and pointed me in different directions. Mm. I had really amazing mentors and friends who were also like looking for answers to their own questions that mm. were close to mine or not. Mm -hmm. And um, so I like collaborating because I think that, you know, I kind of know what's in my own brain but I am pushed to think outside of my own knowledge when I interact with other people mm. and when other people, you know, respond or are in conversation with me and, the, and my ideas, then they'll be like, oh, yeah, but have you thought about this? And don't forget about that. And, mm. oh, my own experience has shown me this or that. And then I learn so much more. And hopefully that's, you know, also something that they can take things away from, too. Mm. And I think conversation is 
just like the most growing place. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> How do you art uh, practice start for you? Hmm. I mean, my art practice started when I was a little kid. The first thing that I did as play was drawing. Mm. And so that is still my foundational practice. I draw a lot all the time. It's not my professional practice, um, but drawing is a way of looking. <clears throat> drawing is a way of being observant. Drawing is a way of calming down my body and of being grounded and paying attention to where I am. Mm. When I was a little kid, uh, I didn't have very many friends and I was bullied in school. And so, and I was having, like, I had different learning disabilities. I couldn't read for a long time. And so my mom, um, you know, I had different tutors and different learning aids and that felt really challenging for me. Um, and so my mom tried to encourage my shyness and my, like, you know, my struggling self through different kinds of supports and growth. And one of them was like this drama class, which was very hard for a shy kid. Mm. But it was really helpful in the long run, but very hard <laughs> at the time. And but drawing, I went and drew with this woman who was a local artist. And she was this retired watercolorist who had done fashion advertising in the 70s in Vancouver. Oh, wow. Yeah, and she was a really spunky... Where were you living here? Oh. I, I grew up in the Okanagan, just oh, okay. Silex territory in the interior of BC. Okay. And that's about six-hour drive from Vancouver and about a seven-hour drive from Calgary, so right in the middle. Pew, pew. Yeah, very small rural community. Um, so I drew with this woman once for two hours once a week from the time that I was seven until the time that I was 18. And in the beginning, she just taught me to look because I was like a little kid and I was very impatient and <laughs> had all this nervous energy and I didn't want to sit still. Yeah. And so every week I would go to her house and she would set up a different still life and I would draw flowers or some ornament that she had around her house mm. or, you know, she put fruit out or some food or a glass with water in it or a telephone or honestly anything that was around and... And I would, you know, and it was cool, like drawing or learning to draw taught me this thing of putting my assumptions aside mm. and looking. Because mm. I, you know, like you think you know how a cup looks. You think you know how an orange looks. You think you know how shadows work. But when you stop and you look, you know, you're, you're corrected. You're like, oh, even though that handle looks like it should be this way, when you draw it, because you, you know, you you're like a bull and you go through and you just draw it the way you think it exists. You're like, that mm -hmm. doesn't look right. Why? She'd be like, look, what's the relationship between this line, this edge and this, you know, shadow or mm. negative space. Mm. And so, I mean, this is a theme that kind of crops up often in many parts of my life. It's like this frustration with, I think I know this thing. I think I know best. I think I know the answer. Mm. And then kind of trying to develop a personal practice of being like, you know, stop, mm. like leave my own ego and my own ideas about what I know, look, listen, observe, mm. and try to understand like what's actually happening outside of myself. Mm. So drawing was my first practice. I'd say my first creative thing. It was my outlet. It was a way that I quieted my mind and my body and my heart when, you know, being a little queer kid that didn't know I was a little queer kid in a mm. rural space, experiencing bullying for being fat 
and like I guess markedly gay. I mean, I don't know. I think kids are pretty intuitive. I was different. I felt different, and they picked up on that. And so it didn't feel awesome to be like um, to experience different forms of like violence and harm for that. And so drawing was a a self-care practice Mm. that I'm really grateful that I had the opportunity to develop. I'm really grateful um, to have been able to carry it. And it's something that I still do a lot. It's part of my journaling practice. And um, I don't know, it's part of my own mindfulness. Mm. I was actually going to ask if you still use that as a form of self-care now. Oh, yeah, Mm. definitely. Um, Something that I'm trying to do is carve out a little bit of time, even five minutes, to do a drawing every morning. Mm. I make myself a coffee or a tea. While it's, you know, bubbling up, I have a notebook in my kitchen where I just, like, will draw whatever's around my kitchen. Mm. And sometimes I'll have more time than other days. Sometimes that's three or four minutes. Sometimes I'll spend 35 minutes and, you know, listen to the radio or whatever. And that's a really nice grounding thing that I can do to be quiet and be still. The world feels very noisy right now and feels a little bit challenging. So I think this is a really gentle thing that I can do to sort of connect. I think I spent so much of my, the first two decades of my life, um, I'm 34 now, Mm. I spent so much of it not understanding not feeling welcome or okay in the world and so disassociating from my body and trying to not be present in it because it felt painful, uncomfortable, awkward, weird. It's not awesome being fat in a society that idealizes thinness. It's not awesome being a femme in a misogynistic society. Uh, It's hard to be queer in a patriarchal straight society. I don't plan to have children. So, you know, like there's all these different assumptions about what correct femininity looks like mm. and then how it's aberrant if it's not pointed toward motherhood um but there's so many different ways that like women people regardless of like their gender ident- identity can participate and like have relationships with kids and like community outside of this nuclear family idea of like a mom and a dad and kids you know mm. like i have so many cool kids in my life and that feels really awesome mm-hmm. but it doesn't like parenthood doesn't feel like part of my plan. And so I, anyway, all these different ways that uh, I felt like I didn't fit into a world or the world didn't actually fit me. And so like moving, trying to not be present in my body, trying to not trying to distract myself from my reality because it felt hard. So Mm. now trying to undo that and instead be solid and grounded as much as I can every day. And it's like these little things, Mm. a three minute drawing, taking time to breathe, noticing when I feel anxious in my stomach or my throat. And creativity feels like such an avenue to um, survive and like navigate my day to day. And collaboration feels like a really generous way to create communities for myself and hopefully others Mm. to survive. Wow. Profound. <laughs> I'm gonna just let that sink in a bit. Uh, but um, oh yeah, actually, let me rewind it a little bit. So you said you know you had all that uh, experience growing up, but when did you you know you said you knew you're different? When did you actually identify personally? Like okay, I'm queer. This is who I am. 
not telling anyone else, but just to yourself? I mean, I, I think I, I always felt very different. But I think for a long time I packaged it as, oh, I'm arty or I'm creative. Because I grew up in a town where there was, like in my high school, it was the late 90s, early 2000s. It was a small town. There was no gay straight alliance in my high school. There were no out students. There was no going to prom with someone of the same sex. There were not visibly queer people. It was mostly white place. It was like a very conservative and odd place where people with lots of money came to retire or raise family. But... So there was, like, a lot of, like, visible affluence, but anywhere where there's lots of, like, money and, like, you know, fun leisure to support people with lots of money, there's also, like, a lot of working class people and, like, exploited people. And so there were, like, lots of, anyways, there was, like, a lot of tension, social tension under the, you know, this, like, thin veil of isn't this place the dream? Mm. Um so I didn't know a lot because I didn't have any queer peers or queer models. And there was no gay TV. I think we take for granted how much like media content and representation there is for queerness and other forms of like non-white, cis, able, you know, uh, identities. And I mean, I had the f I like had friends to look at, and that was I don't know if anyone's watched Friends recently, but it's actually the worst TV show. Uh, yesterday I was watching. So there's a show called the Jim Jeffries Show. This guy, he's like it's like all these late night talk show. But yesterday, I don't know when this episode played because it's old. I recorded, but yesterday it was yesterday I watched this episode, and he said there's a black face mask on. On one of the guys in Friends, who I didn't know. The, well, I don't really watch the show, but I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's so transphobic. It's so homophobic. Uh, Monica used to be fat. They keep bringing up how, thank God you're not fat anymore, Monica. Like, now you can be a desirable, you know, person. Oh. Now you can be a successful person where, you know, fatness might have been a bar to all that. It's just a package of the worst. Like, oh, and wow. that was really, that was dominant culture. Mm. And... You know, like that was the environment I had to grow up in, this mm. town without any visible. I'm sure queerness existed. Obviously, queerness exists everywhere. Mm. But I was a little kid who didn't really have access to that. And so I didn't know until I left and went to university. And I actually came he here to Halifax to Why NASCAD. Why did you decide to come? To, was it because of art school or? Well, OK. So in truth, my first boyfriend died very like suddenly uh in a work-related accident when he was 19 and wow. yeah and I was very lucky that I like fell in love when I was 16 and that I got to learn about sex and my own body with someone who cared about me who I cared about so my first like teenage sexual experiences were really positive um messy confusing obviously mm. but in a very loving environment. And I know that that is not the case for many, many people. So yeah. I feel very grateful. But when that person died, um, it was really traumatizing mm. and devastating. And I needed to get so far away from that place. I couldn't see the same thing. I couldn't see the like same buildings and people that I saw every day. Like yeah. my, I was a teenager. I was a child and my grief felt unfathomable Yeah. and I didn't know what to do. So I ran away. Mm. So I applied to art school in Halifax and, uh, and then I came and went to NASCAD for many years and I studied art here, drawing 
and painting, but then I fell in love with art history because you have to take so and so many art history courses to support your your degree. And I just love them. I love them so much. I was so excited to have access to information and histories and knowledge that made that gave me answers mm. to questions that I started having. Like I had questions like I look at all these my parents are Germans, like my family's ancestry is German. Mm. And so when visiting my Oma in uh, Germany, we'd often do like day trips and we'd see art all over the place and in textbooks. Like we're very familiar with images like the Mona Lisa or, you know, whatever, like Van Gogh's, you know, sunflowers or whatever's on cups, calendars, T-shirts, whatnot. Mm. And so often the images I was seeing were like Napoleon on a horse or Venuses, which are these like white nudes, anonymous, ambiguous, idealized, like composite women and I was like, I don't see myself anywhere in these. How am I supposed to be a painter or a drawer? Mm. I don't know what to make because what is held up as successful and important, um, I can't access that and I can't make that. And I don't see any examples of like women artists making things historically, mm. you know, before, say, the 1950s. Wait, what? Oh yeah. <laughs> I don't know anything about art, so wow. that shows, but are you telling me that like when they talk of like uh Michelangelo and all these guys, they don't mention women till nineteen fifty? Yeah, I mean like women were not I mean, so in the Renaissance there were these workshops. So even people like Leonardo, Michelangelo, they were not these solo geniuses. They had workshops where there would be many people oftentimes in their family, in their village, who mm. would be supporting different aspects of the production of paintings or sculptures. Mm. They'd be priming the materials, doing the underdrawings, you know, like, because, and it's smart, right? Like, it was a trade before it was this art that was held up, before the myth of, like, the modern genius. Um, it was smart if you had, could turn it out faster. So you would have people doing all these different stages. Like a factory. Yeah, so that the master would come along and be like, ah, yes, I'll just, you know. Wait, like that guy we're talking about, the, the balloon guy. Yeah, Jeff Koons. Yeah, him. Is like perhaps the quintessential 20th century factory artist. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. anyway. Yeah, so you were saying? Yeah, so I mean, like, there were obviously women working in those workshops. Yeah. But it was the master, it was the patriarch, the head of the workshop, or the family in some cases, who was putting his signature at the bottom of the painting and then getting the credit. But there are some cases, and these are the exceptions included in earlier textbooks, where a daughter or a noble's... Uh, like a daughter of a person who owned a workshop or who was a famous artist would obviously have access to the master's um, skill and tools and resources and from an early age would get a really good education in drawing or like, you know, painting, mm. um, mark making, rendering, light using oils or tempera or whatever. Mm. And then would become a very good artist in her own right. Mm. But oftentimes her father, brother, husband, whoever would still put his signature on her work. And so there's a lot of like uh, art history and research that goes into trying to reclaim those histories that are lost. And then there are exceptions of like nobles' daughters <clears throat> or people who had access to wealth or other resources who were allowed to like skip the more normative traditional things of their gender that said that you should be anonymous, that you shouldn't be taking up a lot of space, that you're not a painter. Because like painter painting wasn't um like a remarkable pursuit back in the day oh wow it was like a trade right like you didn't have the kind of prestige uh that we associate with maybe being an artist now 
or at different times in history. Mm. Um, but like, yeah, so we have a few exceptions and then um, the textbooks would tote those out and be like, look, you know, what a remarkable single woman in this sea of men makers in Europe, the West, you know, so it's like a super narrow slice of the pie. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> but I mean, you know, I'm thinking, um, why is so interesting in art history if it, it, it seems like it just brings you sadness, really? Like when you read stuff like that, like, fuck. I mean, it brings me madness. Oh, okay. Maybe madness. <laughs> and like, you know, madness is very, like, frustration mm. and anger and a sense of, you know, like, this isn't right. Mm. Um, I, I have a strong desire for there to be justice. I know that's complicated. Mm. But if there is an injustice, then should we not all be really motivated toward working toward, you know, changing that or shifting it? And I feel like it's my responsibility. It feels um, irresponsible to not attend to injustices when we see them. Mm. And so, you know, as an artist, I was like, I don't see myself. Then I went looking. Where can I find myself, mm. people mm. like me making things? And then who else? Oh, wow, I'm noticing that actually a lot of people are not part of this story. Where can I find them? And then, oh, a lot of people have way less privilege than I do, um, have way less access to resources to support, say, their creative work. It's probably my job to make sure that I redistribute power or money if I have access to it or if to space, if mm. I have access to space and others don't. So art history and studying it was just a means to an end, you know, like having a PhD doesn't make me smarter than anybody else. It's just an acknowledge, like I recognize that it allows me to access certain kinds of power and resources. And my goal in like holding this is to uh, share knowledge, to do research, um, to make it as accessible to people as possible. Mm. And uh, my understanding is also that like knowledge belongs to communities. And I'm really skeptical of like capitalist ideas and like enlightenment ideas of property ownership and like intellectual ownership. I try, like if I write stuff, I try to publish it in places where people can read it easily like on the internet in magazines as opposed to journals where maybe two people can access it because you have to be in a university to access academic journals mm. or books you know like I or I try to curate exhibitions where people who say you know don't learn through reading or don't relate to that kind of like way of engaging with information you know maybe they like going into a space and looking at an artwork mm. or um, listening to an artist give an artist talk. So I'm really invested in sharing information on a level, um, many different levels of like platforms of information sharing as mm. possible. Mm. Do you feel that's a lot of responsibility? Yeah, but I don't like, I don't think, I'm not vain or naive. I don't think that I'm going to change the world by myself, but I do mm. believe that um you that everyone needs to live accountably by their own um standards and to their own values and mm. that we all need to take responsibility for our actions and you know like 
and to try to do the things that we can do if I were to focus on all the ways in which my life and my practices fail or participate in harmful structures like capitalism or like ongoing colonialism, um, you know, like you know, some might be really critical of me teaching at a university, you know, as like a really, universities are gatekeeping spaces, elitist spaces. Um, that's a choice. And like, I'm in working in that arena, I'm participating and sort of validating it too. But so it's like holding complexity. It's never one thing or the other. It's not extremes. It's recognizing that hopefully this university can pay my bills and my rent so that, yes, while I offer information to students, I can hopefully also offer information to community people, like local people, but also in like farther reaches for free. Mm. Um, and so th certain things sometimes are means to ends. Mm. Mm. Is that the question that you were asking? Yeah, exactly. You answered it. You answered it. Um, so, <clears throat> oh yeah. So, was it when you now moved to study uh, arts in Halifax? I realized you were. I mean, you said you kind of knew, but you replaced it with, "Oh no, I'm artsy." When, mm. when was the point when, like, "Oh yeah, you know what? This is me now." Yeah, I mean, being around other queer people, mm. um, feeling a sense of community, recognizing myself and other people. And then more recently, it's like it feels so affirming and so nice to be able to watch TV that has queer characters in it, watch TV about people or like, you know, read books or like engage with whatever kind of media that has um, people whose identities like I share. Seeing like fat actors on TV shows is super nice. Seeing really femme actors on TV is really nice. Um it's nice to not just see thin, white, able-bodied, young, like seeing older women who are like sexually empowered and not just, you know, after the age of 35, you become unfuckable, uh, which was like that thing that was on the internet a few years ago. Oh, it was that thing? Yeah, I think when some Hollywood actress made some skit about in Hollywood as an actress, once you reach a certain age, you stop being cast as like the love object and you start being cast as a like mom. the mom. Uh, yeah, so it's it's great to see different kinds of representation yeah. in the media that we're accessing. Social media is also amazing and transformative because people can create content about their own lives and so we can find and navigate and create a bubble of representation that is specifically catered around who we are. Mm. And that's pretty cool and that's pretty affirming. And so it makes uh, it makes existing in relation to like the world that we live in nicer mm. because we have com community with it. Okay, uh, so drawing is something that's super important to you. What other practices do you have, <clears throat> arts wise? Sure. So drawing is this thing that feels very natural to me that I really enjoy doing and. But I also accidentally found myself in a performance art mm. um, with a performance art practice. Um, I think that that is also something that came out of collaborating, uh, working with people. And that came out of thinking a lot about spaces. So when I'm researching and doing this historical like archival work, I'm the questions that I have, the reasons that I go into the past to look for answers is 
because I, I want to, you know, like know why certain things that are happening right now mm. are the way they are. How did we get here? What's the root of this? Mm. Where do I find it so that I can better understand the world that I live in and the way that I'm experiencing stuff? Like, where did this come from? Mm. You know, like not taking things for granted. <clears throat> and then the other half of that question is always, well... How do I shift that? Is there ways of shifting that? And that comes from having, you know, like I did that art history degree, but I also did an art degree. So I've always had this practice of engaging with information, theory, and history in terms of putting it into application. What's the application of this knowledge? How do I change it? Is it writing a paper, an essay, or is it making a painting, a series of drawings, photographs, or do I curate a show? Do I engage with other artists and ask them the question, hey, mm. I've done this research. This is what I learned. You make art that is parallel or adjacent or like also attendant to that question or form of inquiry. Yeah. Um, do you want to like, let's build something together. Let's explore this question and then invite people into that conversation. Mm. And that is such a lovely process. And that's thinking about like, you know, museums and galleries are kind of this construct that have only really existed in the way we think of them for the last 100-ish, 150-ish years. And they are the material, physical, like metaphor representation of art history in the West. So if I'm like writing these essays or thinking about how to interrupt art history as a written historical form, mm. then I want to do that in the spatial way too. And if we like, if I feel that histories are written on the body and like push and discipline the body, mm. how can I you know, like I also want to think about how my body can like non-verbally, non-language, you know, uh, engage with that theory and history and those ideas. So making shows in galleries feels like the answer for me. Mm. And asking other artists what they think about certain specific things is really fun and dynamic and creates, um, I think, really playful uh, shows, exhibitions that evolve over the course of being up mm. um, and that are activated by people coming in and visiting. Like my last show, I built a living room. Uh, it was that that exhibition was called Unpacking the Living Room. And I built an actual living room in the gallery space. Oh, wow. And people could come in and hang out in the way that you would hang out or spend time in a living room. Mm. And it was, there were 15 artists involved in that show, which is a lot of artists. Yeah. And a condition or like part of the conversation that I had with those artists was that guests to that space really need to be able to access and and like engage and be in that space in the same way they would a, like a normal living room. Mm. So I was like, people might need to touch your artwork, which is kind of a big no-no or taboo in terms of museums and art galleries. So oh, is always, that so? Yeah. <laughs> Because every time when I walk in those things, sometimes I'm almost so you can't. But they never write "Don't touch," they or do. you're just supposed to know. They write all over the place. Oh, they do. Don't touch the artwork. <laughs> if you take pictures, take pictures without a flash. Holy shit! <laughs> I need to pay more attention. <laughs> oh my God, Israel, are you going around galleries touching everything? Please tell me yes. Your performance art practice is so badass. <laughs> Just go in and handle all the art. I swear to God, but like, okay, so uh, in I think it's uh, at Galley Nova Scotia, right? When you walk into the hallway, there's this little uh, statue of this guy and girl right by the window, looking outside. 
I touched it. I don't know. You're not supposed to touch it. It didn't say so, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I don't know. I think as much as possible, like respecting also the integrity of the artwork yeah, if it's yeah, delicate yeah, yeah, or fragile. Yeah. yeah, obviously, but it's like, it was like a figurine, right? It was like a figurine. It wasn't going to break. Yeah, but like think also beyond the last 150 years, things that were made were meant to be used, touched, engaged, lived with. Like mm. it was usually rich people with lots of money who were commissioning the art as decoration in their home. So if it was a sculpture, they'd be like touching it, rubbing against it, moving it from like the table to the ledge shelf and then around. Like they're touching it. They're living with it. It's a thing in their life. Mm. If it's a painting, they would sometimes... Patrons would put like curtains over it so that only their eyes could look at it. It was something, this weird privilege thing or whatever. <laughs> but also, like a lot of paintings at different times were meant to be educational because up until very like recently, like the last 150, 200 years, people couldn't read unless they were in like a higher class. And again, this is just like in Europe, in the West. Mm. Um, and so these paintings were a way of disseminating knowledge and like telling people, you know, like stories mm. about you know social order there, there was a performance that you uh did i'm not sure when but it was like it was like 80s fucking um <laughs> gym mm. aerobics yeah thing what was that about so that performance was called workout workout and it was a collaboration with gambletron who is a sound artist based out of montreal and la and uh heather chamberlain who uh, is like a public intellectual public person um, and that performance was really about thinking and that took place in the living room so it was this two and a half hour performance that started as it like was very theatrical so it started as two friends getting together in the living room to do a craft project uh, and the craft project was doing butter sculpture which there's this whole history that I won't get into around like the connection between butter sculpture and colonialism and so these two pals were going to get together in the living room to sculpt selfies out of 10 pound blocks of butter mm. and so that's what the performance begins as and it starts with like I don't know if you've seen on YouTube or on Instagram say there's this phenomenon called the hall video where people go shopping, spend inordinate amounts of money, and then come home with all the bags, film themselves, and like, ooh, I bought this, these shoes, this iPad, this thing, whatever. And they just like present it to the camera, and then they make a big show of taking it out of the packaging. And then they're like, look how shiny it is. And they hold it up, and then it's this like commodity fetishism where people looking at the video are like, I want that. I need that. Mm. And so it's like a lot of influencers do this where yeah. like different companies will send them products and then the influencer will like hold it up for their social media and be like, look at this wonderful product. And anyway, so the performance started with us taking up these bags from all these different craft stores, department stores, mm. and like very slowly pulling out different materials. And, um, you know, like the, sh the performance was also like hearkening back to really s important groundbreaking feminist performance artwork. So Martha Rosler made this piece called The Semiotics of the Kitchen, where she was like deconstructing the domestic labor that um, white women in America and Europe were doing. And, you know, saying this is work. This isn't just natural feminine behavior. Mm. And so um, this performance that... Uh, Gambletron and Heather and I did was also deconstructing 
our role as consumers and how consumerism is tied to the construction of gender. So we were not, yeah, we certainly were pulling like craft materials out of these bags or like lots of kitschy sparkles and faux feathers and pom-poms and, you know, like glitter and like scissors and, uh, you know, like and ribbons and all sorts of craft materials. But then there were also things that were associated with the sculpting of female bodies, feminine bodies, um, for the performance of an idealized femininity. Mm-hmm. Um, so like eyelash curlers, like, you know, um, the things that you pluck your eyebrows with, tweezers, um, nail clippers. And then there's also this really insidious market of different kinds of beauty products that are marketed to um, people from like the East Southeast Asian diaspora to like, you know, like skin whitening creams and things to give you a duo lid if you only like if your eyelid is like one eyelid so like all these different kinds of products that actually like impact your body in different ways Mm. and they're actually pretty like evil um (laughs) so like pulling these kinds of things out of the bag and then there were also things like vibrators and like butt plugs and uh and rolling pins and spatulas and like all these things came out of this bag and these were all the tools that femme consumers use to perform sculpt construct identity so then we used all of these things to make our butter selfies and that was the first half of the performance Mm. and then we like we're building up to a meltdown because the reality of these craft industries is that so much of craft and like if you think about diy and like the kind of instructions that you get on tv shows or you know martha stewart's blog or whatever so much of that is tied into failure those projects are meant to be failed at. I don't know if you've seen the blog called Nailed It. Mm-hmm. It's like people look at different craft instructions to make whatever, some sort of design craft, like those ornament paper uh, decorations or, you know, like different kinds of paper crafts or glue or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then they'll have the picture of the object the way it's supposed to be and then mm. next to it is like their hodgepodge mess of like <laughs> okay. glue where it's destructed and yeah, destroyed yeah, 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 and yeah. awful and then it's like nailed it totally got it and it's this idea that nothing we like nothing the average person mm. makes is going to look as perfect and glossy as what it's supposed to mm. but and so when that person fails at making that perfect craft they're like ah fuck, fuck. it and then they like go to Michael's and buy, because Martha Stewart has a huge line of craft supplies, then you just buy the finished craft so that you can have it in your home, which is like this indicator of your success at being like, what does it say about you to be good at crafts, right? Mm -hmm. Like a lot of like women who are really invested in traditional femininity are really crafty because they think they should be or it like fits with their identity. Mm. So... That's kind of the point of the beginning of the of this performance where we're trying to craft these perfect selfies of ourselves. We, we obviously suck at it, and it's like this massive mess, not to mention that it's butter, which we're handling for 45 minutes. So believe that we're covered in it. Yeah, yeah. And like there's sparkles and butter in our hair <clears throat> and on our faces and all over us, and we're exasperated. And we're also at the same time performing this thing that like hetero, heteropatriarchal society sets women up to do, which is compete with each other. So like we're passive aggressive. Oh, yours looks so nice. Oh, that's amazing. Well, we're just like, nope. Okay. That looks ugly, mm. you know. And and then we have a meltdown. Like we have a full tantrum. Mm. And it's this like anxious activity or moment where it's like you can never realize the perf- 
the perfection that is expected of all of us. Mm. And it's like that perfection is about being like keeping us as pliable consumers so that we keep returning to the market like stores, objects, commodities, products that are for sale to us so that we keep going back to the market for solutions to our failure, whether it's our failure at crafting or our failure at being good laborers. And that's like completely different. Mm. We could talk about self-help industries in that way. Oh my God. I won't get into that one. Okay, I'm gonna gonna end it with this. Um, What next? Um, Great question. I'm kind of like, so I go in, I go in waves and flows. So I just had, I just had this show, did this show, had this beautiful performance that I learned a lot from. Now I'm reflecting and sort of, you know, thinking about whether those projects were what I wanted them to be, you know, like what their strengths were and what the questions that arose out of them are. Mm. And so I'm like returning to research now, reading more. I have more questions that I'm looking for the answer to. Mm. I have exhibitions on the horizon that I want to build that are kind of responding to some of these very early questions. Mm. I have writing that I want to do to explore some of these questions, but really I'm kind of trying to create space to do this research. Mm. Wow. Okay. You know what? When you're done with our research, we have to have you back. So we talk again. Thank you so much for doing this with me, Julie. Thank you so much, Israel. This is the Blackout Podcast. Thanks for listening.